0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is X in Depth by Mike Simpson. I'm
2: Charles Feldman. The new king addresses the UK for the first time. King Charles III praising his mother, Queen Elizabeth, as the country mourns her death.
3: Her dedication and devotion as sovereign never wavered. Through times of change and progress, through times of joy and celebration, and through times of sadness and loss.
2: So we will go in-depth into what's next for King Charles and the U.K. and the challenges they face. And uh, we are also going to head to Las Vegas to try to figure out the death and the details of a murder of an investigative journalist. And his accused killer is ready for this. An elected official.
1: This weather has been something else. Heat and then more heat. We're getting the cool down, but also possibly a lot of rain, the remnants of this tropical storm. So we'll go in-depth into whether we can adapt to these strange weather patterns. Karen Bass being linked to the corruption case against former lawmaker Mark Ridley Thomas. Could that hurt Bass in the L.A. mayor's race? And if you're a regular listener to the show, you know we've talked to a lot of people in Ukraine since the war began. Most familiar voice, uh, journalist Phil Itner. He's back in the U.S. now, so we'll talk to him right here in Mm -hmm. studio at the end of the show
2: about his experiences covering the war. We start, though, with the King's speech. Daniel Rosny is a senior reporter for BBC News. He's in London right now. Daniel, thanks for being with us. So uh, how is that uh, speech by now, King Charles, if you can tell, going over there?
4: I think he really hit the right note. What it showed the British people and the Commonwealth nations around the world and the wider global community is that, he really wanted to renew that lifelong promise of service that he gave when he became Prince of Wales in 1969. And he echoed some of the speech that his mother, the late queen gave when she was 21. And he said that he dedicated his life, however long God grants him, to serve the people of the Britain and the Commonwealth. And we must remember as well, as well as being King of the United Kingdom, of great britain and northern ireland the new king king charles III, is also the leader of the church of england and that comes with it's some really important responsibility for, for people here in the united kingdom
1: he got quite the reception at buckingham palace when he got out of the car with now the the queen consort i had someone remark to me though this morning the monarchy is a very strange thing this man just lost his mother and now it's like okay you're on camera all the time go and shake 300 hands
4: yeah, exactly. And you know, for anybody listening, imagine losing your mother, and less than twenty-four hours later, as you say, you're shaking hands with strangers. And then, because you're then the head of state, you you have certain responsibilities. You have to meet the prime minister, who only became prime minister on Tuesday. And um, what a first week Liz Truss is having! And then <laughs> you have to appear on camera and you know speak to people, not just in Britain but around the world, as as we know that this is this is a global story. of the British population have only ever known one head of state, and that was Queen Elizabeth II, and we now have another. And what we saw yesterday as we were rolling with the coverage of the health of the Queen, as those doctors said that they were concerned for her health, and she was comfortable at Balmoral Castle in Aberdeenshire in North Scotland, was the senior members of the royal family rushing to be at Balmoral Castle. And then you are suddenly reminded that yes, this is the family that is the head of state, but that it is also a family, and people have lost their mother, they've lost their grandmother, around 18 months after they lost their father and their grand, their great-grandfather and their great-grandfather. And that's what the new king, King Charles III, referenced in his speech this evening, where he said on Queen Elizabeth II's final journey to be with his late papa, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh.
2: Let me ask you this, though, about uh, King Charles, uh, you know, his mother, of course, people really didn't know, except for maybe some leaks, and nobody really knows if those leaks are accurate, what she thought about pretty much anything, because that's not her role. It wasn't her role, right? Uh, But Charles is is famously, or I suppose infamously, depending on one's point of view, uh, on record about a lot of different things in the environment, as well as some other issues. What happens now that he's king?
4: Yeah, you're you're really right to bring that up. Theresa May, one of the former prime ministers of the United Kingdom, said today that whenever she had an audience with Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, she knew it was the only time she would spend with somebody and it wasn't leaked to the media because the Queen was so private. What the new king, King Charles III, what he recognises is that his role has changed and he said that in his speech to the nation this evening and he will therefore have to sort of relinquish any responsibilities that he has with certain organisations, certain charities. As you say, he was a champion of the environment and trying to get climate change at the forefront of people's agendas. For the past 30 years, he was kind of ahead of its time and what we see some world leaders trying to do now. And some of that responsibility will now fall to Prince William, who is the new Prince of Wales, and his wife, Catherine, who is the new Princess of Wales. And the the kind of... How King Charles, when he was Prince of Wales, those 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 things that he was really passionate about, what he will be hoping to do is that other members of the royal family will therefore bring that to the forefront of, of what they champion when they do their engagements across the United Kingdom and elsewhere in the Commonwealth.
1: Daniel Rosny, senior reporter for the BBC.
2: King Charles starts his reign with the UK at a much different place than Queen Elizabeth did in 1952. There are current challenges hitting the people hard, such as inflation and economic uncertainty. With us is Tony Travers, uh, who is a professor in the Department of Government at the London School of Economics. Thank you for being with us. Uh, so it has changed. I mean look, the world has changed, certainly since 1952, the U.K. along with it. What is the U.K., though, that now King Charles reigns over?
5: Well, it is very different It's you know worth remembering that when Queen Elizabeth became head of state in Britain, uh, Winston Churchill was her prime minister, and the United States had presidents like uh, Truman and Eisenhower. so this was a very this was a very uh, different world and of course, Britain, like many European, Western and other Western countries, has changed very radically in that time, because, you know, in the early 1950s, Europe was still uh, recovering from the war. In Britain, there were still conscriptions. Young men had to join the armed forces. Um, there was rationing of food and other forms of rationing. So it's all the way through to today with a globally interconnected uh, society, the world of the Internet and global travel. And, you know, despite all the problems facing, uh, the UK and other European countries, largely because of, uh, oil price and other inflationary impacts in the short term, um, you know, the Queen managed this 70 year, an extraordinary period for a head of state, a 70 year transition, endlessly moving with the times, representing in a sort of soft way patriotism of Britain and Britain's aspirations, but also being sort of the head of state yet above politics. And of course, uh, you know, it's an amazing achievement for anybody, not just because of the length of time, but because of how well she did it.
1: He is taking over at an uncertain time. Obviously, the new PM is there too. It is an era of economic uncertainty. You've got problems over there. We've got them here too. But sure. what is her plan to try and address some of this?
5: Well, I mean, it is the case that we've had a change of uh, head of State uh, because of the Queen Elizabeth's death and head of government in the same week. So Britain has a new Prime Minister, head of government, in the same week, and Liz Truss, who's the head of government, is now going to have to deal not with only with the big jump in energy prices and inflation, but a whole range of domestic problems in the UK. The National Health Service needs attention, the strikes on the railways and so on. So it's a, it's a major moment of transition, but I mean, today the House of Commons, um, they, were, they were discussing you know, the, the
3: memories of M-
5: members of Parliament of the Queen, and it was a, a moment of British politicians across the, the aisle, across party lines, coming together, and actually the, the performances there were very impressive, it was a more cohesive version of uh, a democracy than most of us normally see in any of them.
2: Let me ask you this, too. Uh, We, in our last uh, segment here, we were talking about uh, one key difference, of course, between his mother and King Charles is his mother was, you know, famously, uh, you know, nobody knew what she thought pretty much about anything because that wasn't her role. Whereas Charles, uh, you know, he's a man in the 70s. He's had uh, many, many different controversies. He's been on record for various different causes. So let me let me ask this in a way that if I would have asked this, maybe in the fifteen hundreds in the UK would have gotten me sent to the Tower. Can he keep his <laughs> ma- could he keep his mouth shut now?
5: Well, it's interesting. In the speech he made this evening to um, people of Britain and the Commonwealth, he effectively made it clear that he was going to step down from his charitable interests and the things he's pursued. It's worth saying that the interests that he had, which included The environment, it included uh, an interest in heritage and the built in what buildings and streets and towns and cities look like and other issues. They weren't really sort of party political. They didn't fit in a classic left, right, you know, conservative labor, Democrat, Republican kind of spectrum. They were his personal interests. But I think from the speech he gave this evening, it looks as if he realizes that, like his mother, he now has to distance himself from anything that could be construed to be controversial. Because, you know, as a constitutional monarch, that's the only way it works. Unless you're prepared to stand back from day-to-day politics, if you get any way involved near it, it's trouble. So you have to stand back from it and act with theoretical power, the power you don't use. You have influence, but not power. And I think it sounded from the speech tonight as if that, uh, he's, made, he's understood that.
1: Tony Travers, professor in the Department of Government, London School of Economics.
2: Coming up, the L.A. mayor's race takes a turn now as questions are being raised about a USC scholarship that Karen Bass received. And if you've been following our coverage of the Ukraine war, then journalist Phil Littner's name is probably familiar to all of us. We'll talk to Phil in studio. He's back in the U.S. to share his stories covering the war.
1: Right now, you may have heard about this strange murder case out of Las Vegas. Investigative reporter Jeff Gurman works for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, was known for digging, digging into stories about government corruption, the criminal underworld. He was stabbed to death last weekend. The person arrested and accused for the murder... A uh, former elected official. David Charnes, investigative reporter at KLAS TV, CBS affiliate there in Las Vegas. David, thanks for being here. So this reporter had done a story on this elected official.
6: Correct. Yeah. Uh so Rob Tellis is actually still an elected official here in Clark County. It's an office, the office that administers people's estates uh when they die and and then they can't find a family member. So think of it as like a public guardian. Uh It is an elected position in our county, and uh, uh, Rob Tellis, who is uh, in jail right now on this murder charge, still holds this position. It would actually require a recall election. He lost his primary election in the race for this job uh, back in June, so he was outgoing anyway, but he's likely still going to hold on to this job until at least January.
2: You know, I, I was searching my memory. I can't think of another case. Maybe you can where there there had been a murder and the accused killer turned out to be an elected government official. can Is there a case?
6: I cannot think of a case like this that certainly I have covered. Uh, I'm unfamiliar with any case like this, certainly uh, in the Las Vegas area. I think what makes it very, very odd, as you mentioned, and something that a lot of people continue to talk about today, is that you know, people voted for for Rod Tellis. He won his election in 2016. He has held this job for almost six years now, uh, and he blamed Jeff Gehrman on these stories about turmoil in his office for his primary defeat back in June.
1: What was some of the turmoil in the office that that Gehrman reported
6: on? So it's a sh- it's a small office. It's just about eight people. Again, they administer estates for people uh, who, whose families can't and. Jeff Geerman had uh, done about four stories in May and June leading up to the primary. Uh, we had it here on June 14th, and in the reporting was that there was, quote, turmoil in the office, that there was sort of this old guard under the longtime public administrator versus some of the newer people who Rob Tellis had brought in. Jeff Geerman's reporting also included an hour long video that uh, had Rob Tellis in a vehicle with one of these employees, and it was Referred to as a possible affair uh, that has not been um, confirmed in any way, and, it, and Jeff Geerman uh, reported that Rob Tellis had said that he and this employee were hugging in their car. Uh, but clearly, there was a lot of uh, things that Geerman was reporting that Tellis appears to not have liked, and here we are today.
2: David, you're an investigative reporter. Does this sort of thing give you a bit of pause? That that a fellow investigative reporter in your city uh, was killed perhaps by not only somebody he reported on, but an elected official at that.
6: You know, I appreciate that, that question. Um, Last night, I will tell you that after I came home from covering the details that were exposed yesterday in this case, the first thing I did was Google my name and see if my address came up <laughs> on the Internet uh-huh. um, and sort of going through the process of removing that if, if I did, in fact, find it. You know, it's scary. Um, we, we do things. We expose things. We report on the truth, as you guys know, every day. Uh, and people don't like it. I've never seen the extent in this country where, where it goes to this. I think there was certainly inflammatory rhetoric from from people against journalists and, and journalism for people doing their jobs. Um, there is nothing that Jeff Geerman seems to have reported that was incorrect. Uh, it just appears to be somebody who publicly had said that the reporting uh, was false, and he didn't like it.
1: David Sharns, KLAS-TV,
2: CBS in Las Vegas. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Heat wave has
1: been really long, really bad. Finally going to disappear after more than a week, but to replace it could be heavy rain. Bands of Hurricane K, Tropical Storm K, Whip in Southern California could drop a couple inches of rain this weekend in the
2: foothills and the mountains. It's unusual for the L.A. Basin to get hit with significant September rain. Then again... It's unusual for heat waves here to last this long. If this wacky and unpredictable weather becomes the norm, can we adapt? Bill Deverell is a professor of history, spatial sciences, and environmental studies over at USC. Thanks for being with us. So, you know, in recent years when we would have these sort of brief heat waves or an occasional day of odd rain we would always sort of say things like well you know that's kind of unusual and we'll be back to normal by next week but maybe we are in the normal are we
0: it's it's entirely possible we're in the normal i agree with you we used to think that uh strange weather events were anomalous but this it's not a pattern yet but this arrival of very unusual weather patterns is i think something we'd best get used to both in terms of how we deal with them, and also how we expect them.
1: And when we say unusual, what do we term that as? With heat waves, I guess one of the, the things is the length, right? It used to be like three or four days, like that was a heat wave. We just did what, 10? Yeah, I think the
0: length, certainly the severity of, I mean, take your pick these days, the severity of the heat, the severity of the fire dangers, the severity of potential torrential rainfall accompanied by debris flows, These are major, major events and we are gonna see more of them.
2: You know, everything you just ticked off, I'm thinking, boy, that wouldn't go over big on a chamber of commerce poster. (laughs) It's it's
1: (laughs) supposed to be sunny and seventy two degrees, right? Yeah,
2: well well in fact. Go ahead. Yeah, you've put your
0: finger on it. You put your finger on it. This is a this is a region that has traditionally identified itself with a kind of idyllic relationship with nature. And, and that so, is changing before our very eyes.
2: And so, therefore, does it follow, and I would suspect it does, that this is going to have a severe economic impact on the state, right? Because people may not want to move here if they think that the weather here is kind of rotten a lot. The movie industry migrated, as you know, I'm sure, from the East Coast to the West, uh, you know, 100 years ago because of the pretty much good weather. What now?
0: Well, I don't think we know. I think we need to uh, address the expectation of these kinds of consequential uh, reactions to this sort of weather change. Yes, absolutely. Where it all goes, uh, unclear. I think just as a culture and a society and a population of millions and millions of us, we'd best be better prepared than we are.
1: How do we prepare for some of this, short of if you don't have it yet because you live on the beach, getting an air conditioner?
0: Well, I think one of the things is you just rewire your brain in terms of what the weather is likely to do. So we have to keep in mind this kind of pendular effect of climate. We see dry, 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 but that will be followed by fewer, but then nonetheless, very major wet periods. And so when we're praying for rain, we're going to get it. It's just going to come in torrential um, fashion more so than we would have maybe once expected as a more steady state relationship with nature.
2: I mean, and then there are, I guess, simple things. You know, before the segment began, we were joking around about, do we all know where we have our umbrellas? But I've been in stores where when there were forecasts of rain coming, they didn't have any because they said, well, you know, we don't sell many. And so we don't keep well stocked. That's going to have to change, isn't it?
0: Well, it is going to have to change. And it's, it, of course, runs deeper than that, as you both know. It's, it's both where do you get an umbrella and do you use it, but also how do you capture that rainwater instead of just having it flood out uh, eventually to the sea? We've, you know, we've, we've got to recognize how precious this resource is. We have to have better mechanisms by which we capture it when it comes. And it's hard to convince a society to do that sometimes. And you might get seven years in a row of drought or more and think, well, it's not going to rain. Well, it will rain. It just it, the patterns are changing right now.
1: Are we getting better at capturing because that's been a years long discussion and some of these projects are going to take more years to even build?
0: Yes, I do think we are getting better. Major infrastructure projects are expensive. They take a certain kind of political will and they take a long time, but we are getting better at them building reservoirs, for instance, which are dry most of the time uh, for years on end. But they're there when we're going to get these big rains like we're about to see here very, very shortly.
1: Bill Deverell, professor of history, spatial sciences, environmental studies, USC.
2: The L.A. mayor's race just got a little more interesting. Karen Bass was one of two lawmakers to get a scholarship at USC's social work program valued at nearly $100,000.
1: The other, former county supervisor, L.A. city councilman Mark Ridley-Thomas, now facing bribery and fraud charges along with the former dean of the social work program. The L.A. Times reported prosecutors say Bass's scholarship is critical to their case, but she's not under investigation. Bass denies allegations of scholarship she received had any relation to the Ridley Thomas case. Derry Schrago, back with us, political strategist and USC professor. Derry, thanks for being here. So there's the saying, uh, the ads write themselves. We've already seen Rick Caruso, uh, Bass's opponent, hold a whole press conference on this.
7: Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm at USC, and and both of them are involved with USC, and 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 so this is fascinating to me, and 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 you know, I've managed a lot of campaigns and advised a lot of a lot of uh, candidates for office and officeholders, and this one's very simple. Uh, From my perspective, if I was advising Karen Bass, I'd say, keep it short, keep it truthful. It's that simple. I mean, the answer is, look, the U.S. Attorney's Office has said I'm not under investigation. Uh, They may call me as a witness. If I'm asked to testify as a witness, I'll testify truthfully. I mean, that's, that's all she should say. That's all she has to say.
2: I guess what confuses perhaps some people is if she is not under investigation, as apparently she is not, why is she even involved in this to begin with?
7: She uh, received a scholarship from the social work school, and and the social social work school at USC uh, is, or the former dean, I guess, um, is under investigation. And so, you know, she was. It's sort of like not exactly, but she was in the room when it happened. And so the U.S. attorney's office uh, obviously thinks, at least for now, that she knows things and could testify to things that may relate to their to their case against against the, the current defendants.
1: Would that not be usual?
7: I mean, it's, ha- it's happened to me. I mean, I've been a witness in in, in political uh, corruption trials too. you know, not investigated, but you're in the room, literally.
1: Yeah. Would that I'm be sure like, that. did they pressure you? But there, was there any ask for quid pro quo? Was there anything like that? Is that. The line they go down like, hey, they gave you this. It looks like a gift.
7: Yes, absolutely. Well, they'll they'll take it as far as they can take it to prove their case. But, you know, I mean, forget the public statements in the the context of the mayor's race. Certainly on the stand, her attorney is going to tell her just, you know, tell the truth. That's all. Just just tell the truth. And based on what the U.S. attorney knows, um, apparently uh, there's no reason to think that she may uh, be charged with something. And, And on the other hand, you know, Rick Caruso is obviously very deeply committed to USC, has played an incredibly important role there. And uh, if, if he called me and said, well, what do I do about this? I'd say, if you think you want to take a shot, take a shot. But, you know, the answer from somebody, probably not from Karen Bass, but from one of her supporters will be, wait, hold on a second. All this happened on your watch. You were a trustee, so what did you do about it? So he's got some exposure here, and and we'll just have to see who lands what punch. You know, it's a tennis game. There's one player on each side of the court, and they'll keep hitting the ball back and forth. And, um, you know, we'll see if anybody, anybody bobbles the ball and hits it into the net.
2: I wonder, though, if the public cares about this sort of stuff anymore. I mean, we've undergone so many changes in the political landscape in recent years, things that used to disqualify candidates. Now people kind of shrug their shoulders and they go, yeah, oh, well, so what? And they move on. Is this one of them?
7: Well, time will tell, but I think you're right. I think you hit a very important point here, which is that uh, voters have become, uh, I guess we could say, increasingly tolerant of all kinds of behavior that used to be you know, just, just killers for people in office or people running for office. And and I know from listening to voters in L.A. in the last year that this may very well, and again, I hate to predict anything, it may turn out to be at at best for both candidates, yada, yada, yada. You know, we've heard this all before. Voters don't particularly trust anybody in politics, consultants included. And so this, this you know, Caruso may not land a punch.
1: Does it also kind of complicated the fact that it's a complicated story that okay there was a bill in congress that would have expanded some access to federal funding and the social work school was in there but she says uh there was somebody else that brought that to me years ago and then the ethics committee cleared me for the gift and then i you know it takes 30 yeah. minutes to explain everything and you don't have that in a 30 second ad you can hit out on the, the the headline but past that you know you get into a huge discussion about it and people's eyes kind of gloss over.
7: No, well, they do. They absolutely gloss over. And, and and I mean, I've seen this happen over and over again, uh, you know, both in elections and in focus groups and opinion research. They just throw up their hands. I mean, they they don't think they can make sense of it. So then they have to decide how important the charge is. And and, you know, again, we'll see what happens here. But uh, and and I think that you guys said this uh, voters have more important things on their mind than this. And I mean, you know, start talking about homelessness and a whole bunch of other issues that they care about a great deal in, in L.A. And this may be just, as I said, sort of yada, yada, yada.
1: If she is the more, quote unquote, trusted already in the polls, though, and this kind of thing comes up, and it doesn't look good, at least that headline version, and maybe even later when you dig in, does she take a hit in that category? And people go, well, maybe, I don't know, that this Crusoe guy, I'll give, I'll give him a thought.
7: I think that's a very important point. That is a risk that she confronts, and that's why I said my advice to her it would be keep it short, keep it truthful, and and don't look defensive. If you have no reason to be defensive, don't start looking defensive. So straight answers, honest answers. That's the best she can do. And as I say, I never know. If I knew, I would have won every campaign I ever managed. <laughs> but, but my guess is that, 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 you know, based on what we just said, voters are going to move on to things that they do understand and are more immediately concerned with. And, you know, And there's some major issues in the city that rise to that level, and they may conclude this just is not one of them.
1: Derry Srego, political strategist and professor there at USC.
2: And I have a feeling that this is going to yeah. probably come up. It, uh, it just might. It might, because uh, KNX is going to be hosting a one-hour debate between Karen Bass and Rick Caruso. That's going to be Thursday, October the 6th at 5 p.m. sharp. Be there. This is KNX In Depth along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
1: Putting yourself in a war zone, something people generally try to avoid. Journalists, though, sent directly to those areas. However, they go because the job requires it, not necessarily because they want to cover a war right up close.
2: And then there's Phil Littner. He voluntarily left the U.S. to spend months in Ukraine covering the war and the people there. If Phil's name is familiar, it's because you've heard him many times during the show the past few months. Reporting from Ukraine, Phil is back in the U.S. for now, and he's with us here in the studio. Phil, thanks for coming by. Appreciate well, it's nice it. Nice to
3: be indoors and in, in studio, <laughs>
2: and and no bombs going and off no around siren, you. Yeah. yeah
3: how no many air
1: times air did we do something and there was an air raid siren yeah. behind times. him? Yeah.
3: yeah. Several times, uh, it would happen.
2: So, so you were there for uh, on this last sort of tour. You were there for how long?
3: Roughly five months i went mean, I, I i tried to get in as quickly as possible uh, i'd been monitoring it and to build up to the twenty fourth and then when the twenty fourth actually I was desperately hoping that we would find a way to avoid this war. Um, I was hoping that, at the the, the very least, it could be delayed and pushed back into an uh, unfavorable season for the Russians to conduct an invasion. That turned out not to be the case, so I got on a plane as quickly as I could. I was in the Bay Area at the time, visiting friends and family, and uh, no, I couldn't sit it out. I've been going to Ukraine for over 20 years, and I love the country very much, and uh, no, I couldn't sit it out. So. As quickly as I could, I got there. And it's been about five months uh, bouncing between Lviv, Kiev, and Odessa. Um, Had to come back to deal with some family issues and some other matters that that couldn't be done uh, uh, from afar. So I came back, but I intend to, when when my affairs are concluded here, turn around, get on a plane, and go back. Because I think this is a hugely significant war. And I think that um, the ramifications of it are going to be enormous, and uh hopefully it will be the last war I'll ever see. So that's my intention.
1: The draw is your love for that country. is it the people is and the is the different perspective being there and then talking to us you know on the outside what what is that like being an American and going there and then talking to all of us?
3: Well, I wanted to I I wanted to be there and bear witness. Um that was very important to me because I had been on the Maidan which was the the uh, uprising uh, back in 2014 and um had felt very strongly that it was important that Ukraine stay on people's radar because it is um it is Ukraine is um Interestingly enough, the, the very name itself um, relays kind of one of the reasons why I feel so importantly about it because you in Old Slavic, u is a preposition for on, and crane is, it's disputed, but it's either ledge or shelf or border. So the name itself is on the borderlands. And so this is a, a stretch of Europe where greater powers have always kind of vied for position and for power and whoever dominates that section of europe tends to have an influence on a much more global or at least regional level and i knew the the russians were going to come for it eventually especially after my dawn. and i had made promises i just flat out said to 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 people you know who begged me not to forget about ukraine that i would not do that
2: Let me ask you about the the people there. I mean, we've talked to, uh, I don't know, I've lost count, innumerable people during the course of this war in Ukraine, as well as, of course, talking to you when you were there. And it it is remarkable, I think, how they, they seem to be holding up. Now, I guess my question to you is, by definition we get a skewed sample right i mean we're getting first of all ukrainians who are very fluent in english so they can talk with us on the air we're getting ukrainians who want to for one reason or another talk to us is that an accurate picture uh, are the people in general holding up or are we getting kind of a, a a sort of slanted view of what's going on there
3: well you know as with everything there's nuance in an, in an answer to a question like that um I think you're getting correctly the sense of the Ukrainian people that they are determined to win this war. And that for them, they see it as an existential threat to their identity, their culture, their language, um, their sovereignty. Uh, So they they are determined to win this war. Um, We we. Don't in the West we don't have a full understand. Or generally, I don't think we have a real understanding of of that stretch of of European territory and and what it's gone through in its history. Ukraine has sought sovereignty for arguably five hundred years, and they've wanted that they wanted it to be self-determinant um, this is a war of col- colonialization. there's no doubt in my mind this is it's analogous to Britain and uh, or to you know the, the United Kingdom and Ireland and the, the Irish breakaway uh, you know in a post-colonial world it, it's almost exactly the same in many ways lots of differences as well but Russia sees Ukraine as a colony. Ukraine says we will not be a colony of anybody anymore, whether that's Warsaw or Washington, or of course, Moscow. So you get a good impression, I think, when you talk to Ukrainians of that sense, which I think is pervasive throughout the entire country. There are, certainly there are people who are closer to Russia uh, than others. their, Their first language is Russian, not Ukrainian um they they feel a kinship to the orthodox the russian orthodox church for example um and there are many who actually also get the propaganda message coming from um russia that uh, you know the, the the west is decadent and evil and and if you if you hitch your 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 wagon to the west that it ultimately you it will, it will end with your moral decline uh and your you know you'll just be a puppet of the west Um, And there are Ukrainians that buy into that because they get it they get it mainlined because it's also in the common language of Russian. So they exist as well. But by and large, uh, it's a long way around for me to say, by and large, I'm (laughs) sure that the people that you have been speaking to in in Ukraine are expressing uh, a very widespread uh, attitude, which is this is our time. It's now or never, if we lose this war, we will never be sovereign again, and we cannot allow ourselves to be subjugated to our ancestral colonial power.
2: Phil, uh, I was wondering, because at the early stages of this war, there was much reporting, you yourself would would talk about it with us from Ukraine, about all the people who left Ukraine because, well, there was a war going on and they didn't wanna be there, and I guess that's understandable. How many left, but more importantly, what's happened to those people? Are they still out of the country if some of them returned
3: to Ukraine? And if they did, why? A lot of people have left and have gone into programs that many European countries have actually instituted to deal with the refugee crisis. So they're finding housing quite easily if they want it, whether that's Germany or Poland or Ireland or, you know, take your pick. Um, and and many are staying, especially with those who have children or extended families who, who really do need the protection of being in a, a stable situation. Um, many, however, are coming back. And they're coming back because now we have an idea of the lay of the land. Certainly at the beginning of the war, we had no idea how mobile things were going to be, what territory was going to be compromised and what wasn't. So now that we have a better idea of that, some are coming back for— just because they know that it's relatively safe and they want to live in their own homes make sure that their own homes are not ransacked or you know anything happens in their in their absence but then there are those who are coming back because um, there is a real sense of survivors guilt um, the, the fact that, the, that their country is going through this trauma and that they fled and that they they for whatever reasons legitimate or in their own eyes or in the eyes of their, their the their fellow countrymen or what have you, um, that, uh, that, you know, uh, that they, despite whatever reason compelled them to leave, that that they really should be back standing with Ukraine and standing on their own soil. I was, for example, I I was an eyewitness to a a phone call um, a few months into the war where one young man had gotten out and his brother, who I was with in Lviv, um had stayed and the brother had left to get the family out and then the war really I mean it was right before the invasion the invasion happened he found himself kind of basically stuck in Poland and the phone call was heart wrenching because I could hear him sobbing on the other end of the phone because he felt such guilt that he was not in Ukraine, in his own words, killing Russians for his for his country. Um, that it really upset him I could I could hear the emotion on the other end of the phone of this guy who 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 felt terrible that he'd gone somewhere safe while the rest of his country was was in turmoil so there's a lot going on with that but I'll tell you when I left when I arrived in March 1st there were massive streams of course crowds of people fleeing as quickly as they could when I left in August August 1st, uh, around about that time, it was a trickle. It was a hmm. handful of people leaving.
1: There have been multiple aid packages coming from us uh, here in this country, from Europe. The frequency, how much of a punch those pack. Is Ukraine getting what they need? And have you seen a drop-off in that assistance, or at least the attention span from this side of the world?
3: I've, se- I've seen some drop-off. Um, because frankly, actually, a lot of the Ukrainians are saying to the West, "You're sending us the wrong thing. We don't need that. We're we're a developed nation. We're not, you know, we're not, um, we're not impoverished. We we have means in this capacity, that capacity, and the other capacity to take care of ourselves. This is what we need. And I think a lot of NGOs and people whose intentions were good were approaching Ukraine at a very a different perspective than what the the um, reality is on the ground. For example, they have a medical system uh, in Ukraine that is, it is you know, world class. So they don't need MRIs. They don't need, you know, uh, a lot of, of what was being sent to them in the beginning um, because they had it there. What they need is the peripheral stuff that may be—so uh, maybe they need more— um, you know uh incubators, I'm not saying this is what they need. I'm saying maybe they have a need for that um but they're the but they're getting these these other things that are more what you would expect in other kind of war zones, impoverished parts of the world that maybe uh would would have fallen into war so on the battlefield for example they don't they may not need night vision goggles but they might very well need the batteries for those night vision goggles so you need to be thinking about a, a much more nuanced um uh, list in terms of what it is they need. Now, of course, they need the weaponry, first and foremost, and they're getting that, it's my impression. But let, all let, these other things, let me get this you intro. have to think secondary and tertiary.
2: Yeah, sorry to interrupt,
3: but we're
2: all yeah, no, we going to run short on time, and so I'm going to stick you with this very really difficult question to answer at the very end. <laughs> no, of course. Uh, That's how we do it,
1: right? Yeah. Uh,
3: how do you think this is going to end? Well, first and foremost, I don't see any scenario where Russia comes out the victor in this war. I just don't see it happening. We see the, the the advances that are happening right now with the with the counteroffenses the the Ukrainians are posting, and the lack of fight in the Russian side of the equation. I don't see them. I don't see a scenario where they win. Now they might take some territory. They might hold on to Crimea, which is an existential threat. The loss of that would be to to Russia. So they may hold on to that, um, fight for it tooth and nail but ultimately there's going to be a country called Ukraine and there's going to be a sovereign Ukrainian government in Kiev and for Russia that is a huge blow because that is something they that they distinctly wanted to get rid of they did not want a pro western Kiev and that's exactly what's going to happen they've they've um, they've strengthened the bonds within the NATO alliance. They've expanded the NATO alliance by conducting this war. I think Russia is in a real serious spot. I think they're going to lose this war. It is going to be a humiliating loss. It is going to be a devastating loss in terms of what it does to their economy, to their world standing. Um, for, for you know, They're going to be a pariah state for quite some time, certainly, while Putin is in power. I don't think the Ukrainian war is the real crisis. I think that what happens after the Ukrainian wars what's the, where's it going to be the crisis because I think Russia is at a is is at an inflection point that maybe it should have addressed in the fo- after the fall of the Soviet Union and they never quite did because the dreams of Yeltsin were so quickly smashed by a KGB uh, an intelligence and a military uh, takeover in the Kremlin uh, that has led to the last, you know, 22 years of Russia not doing any of the essential changes that I think it needs to do and has needed to do, um, certainly in the post-Soviet era. And it has not addressed some fundamental issues of how it's it's structured. And this is going to be such a shock to the system when the Ukrainians win this war, which I think is, a, is going to be an inevitability. When that happens, I don't know. But the, the, the question is what happens after the Ukraine war, and what, what, what does Russia do as a defeated nation, as a humiliated nation, and as a pariah state?
1: Phil Itner, thank you for coming in, and we'll talk to you when you're back. Indeed. That's In Depth for today. For the week, we'll be back on Monday.